We are now in the middle of Matthew chapter 7, and you may notice that the verses on the screen are slightly different than uh, the verses in the uh, bulletin. That's because we print the bulletin on Friday, and I change things after we printed the bulletin. So I discovered that the sermon really was just these two verses, and I think that will become clear as as we unpack it. So um, Matthew chapter 7. And then we're just looking at verses 13 and 14. That is page number 1,506. Hear the word of the Lord. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road, that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would show us the truth of these words, that you would help us to understand how we should think through what is the narrow gate and what is the wide road, and how to differentiate between the two Give us grace and mercy this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you, I imagine, are familiar with the story of the children of Israel. And for those who are not, I'll give a brief recount. But uh, early in Genesis, God chooses a man named Abraham, and he makes many promises to him. He promises Abraham that he will have many descendants He promises Abraham that he will give to him land and that through him, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And then Abraham has a miraculous child named Isaac and those promises continue through him. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is chosen as the son through whom the promises to Abraham will continue And then Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. They eventually become the nation of Israel after spending 400 years in slavery in Egypt where they grow to become a nation. God rescues them miraculously out of Egypt, takes them into the wilderness. They wander there for 40 years until eventually they do come into the land that God promised to Abraham. And then in the book of Judges, we read about how these people that God saved into a nation constantly rebelled against him. And Judges is actually, it's a pretty depressing book because it shows what happens over time to God's people. They they become rotten and corrupt. And one of the repeated phrases throughout the book of Judges that helps us understand what leads to Israel's corruption is this. It says several times in the book, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there was no king, there was no person to lead and to establish what was righteous. There was no king to help keep the people on the right path, you know, either against their will, even if that's what it took. And so the people, with no leader, just did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what seemed right and what felt right to them. 
They didn't listen to authority. They didn't consider the wisdom of their elders or the wisdom written down from the past. Whatever seemed right or felt right in their own heart is exactly what they did. And I would encourage you, actually, to read, if nothing else, the last three chapters of the book of Judges. It's, it's quite horrifying what happens to the people of Israel. And then the prophet of Jeremiah tells us why this happens, because this is a repeated pattern that we not only see happen to Israel, but to other nations as well. He says, the heart, meaning the human heart, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The Apostle Paul explains further that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And so God tells us that there's a choice in this life. And the choice is between doing what seems right in our own eyes, according to our deceitful hearts that are naturally hostile to God, or we can believe God and we can serve him, and we can submit to his law. And ultimately the choice is between trusting ourselves or trusting God as he has revealed himself in his word. And God assures us in his word that we cannot trust ourselves and that his word is actually more true than whatever we think and whatever we feel. And so there's no in-between. We we don't get to have our favorite sin and heaven. In chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has taught us about how his people relate to the law from the heart instead of through outward obedience. And then in chapter 6, he teaches us how we relate to God. We obey him simply to please him and not to please other people. We serve him only and we trust him to take care of us. And then the last two weeks, we looked at how we relate to each other. We don't judge each other. We do treat others as we would have them treat us. And our passage this morning actually begins Jesus' conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. And he puts before us again these two choices. Are we going to believe him? Or are we going to do what seems right in our own eyes? So here's our outline. First, the choice is clear. And second, the choice is simple. So first, the choice is clear. Here's what Jesus says. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only few find it. So there's two gates, one is narrow and one is wide. There's two roads, again, one is narrow and one is wide. There are two crowds, there's the few who find the narrow road, and there's the many who go down the wide road. And then there's two destinations, life or destruction. There is, there is no other option. There is a narrow gate that leads to a narrow road that is hard if you find it, but that is the road to life. There is a wide gate and a broad road that is easy, and many enter through it to their destruction. 
The narrow gate is narrow because it requires us to trust God instead of what seems right to us. And the wide gate requires us just to do whatever we wanted to do anyway. This choice is not new. God has given his people this choice before when Moses wandered with the people for 40 years in the wilderness, right before they went into the promised land. This is what he says to them. He says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Two choices. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, and then you will live and increase And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But, alternatively, if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. And so then Joshua takes the leadership of Israel... He leads the people into the promised land. And then at the end of his life, this is what he says to them. He says, blessed is the one who does not, oh, sorry. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors. Oh, sorry, the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, Then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now it can seem like Joshua has given the people three choices there. He said, well, you can serve the the gods that your uh, forefathers served beyond the Euphrates, or you can serve the gods of the Amorites in the land that you're living now, or you can serve the Lord. But really, there's only two choices. It's, it's to serve the Lord or anything else. That's why the other road is wide and broad, because it includes all other choices other than serving the Lord. King David begins the book of Psalms this way. He says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit, yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. There are two paths. There's a wide path and a narrow path. There's a narrow gate that gets you onto that wide path. There's a broad gate that gets you onto that broad road. It's easy to do what is right in our own eyes. It's easy to indulge our own desires, to be selfish and self-seeking and to convince ourselves that we should do and have whatever it is that we already wanted to do and have. It's easy to justify our own anger and our own lust and our own unfaithfulness and our own lies. It's easy to justify why our enemy needs to be punished 
instead of loved and prayed for. It's easy to serve money and to trust it more than God. It's easy to be anxious. It's easy to judge others and to love myself more than anyone else and to treat myself how I already want to be treated. But it's difficult. It's difficult to put to death sin. It's difficult to turn from it. It's difficult to endure temptation day in and day out and to resist it. The Bible says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's hard to believe that promise. It's hard to confess our failure and then to have to confess it again and again because it's so humiliating. It's difficult to live like Jesus tells us we are to live as citizens of his kingdom. It's difficult to set our hearts and our minds on heaven and to develop a hunger for his word. It's difficult to learn to love keeping the Sabbath and coming to church more than we love vacation and sports or a number of other things that our world offers us every day and every week. When Jesus says that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees and that we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect and that we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and that we are to do to others as we would have them do to us, it's easy to try to figure out why I don't have to change and how those words can't really mean what it very clearly seems like they mean. It's easy to keep doing what seems right in my own eyes. And it's hard to take seriously the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so throughout the sermon, Jesus has been telling us that this is what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom. And this then is what it looks like to be on the narrow road. And now he's putting the choice before us. And that choice is very clear. And only the narrow road leads to life. We can believe that God has revealed himself clearly in the words of scripture and that he is holy and perfect and that he has created the world and he's holding it together by the word of his power and that he exists eternally as father, son, and spirit and that he knows the end from the beginning and that he expects his people to be holy as he is holy, which means we care about moral purity as God describes it in his word and the poor. Or we can make up our own set of beliefs. We can deny the clear teachings of scripture. We can tell ourselves that we will only believe in a God that makes sense to us. And we can come up with all kinds of ways to explain away who God says he is so that we can do whatever seems right in our own eyes. Or we can just deny that God exists. That's easy too. Because if the God who created me and who I owe for every breath I take, if he's not actually there, then I'm God. Then I get to live however I want and do whatever seems right in my own eyes. One gate is narrow because God gets to define what we believe and how we behave. And the other road is wide because I get to define what I believe 
and how I live my life. And one way to know that we've entered by the narrow gate and that we are on the narrow road is when our beliefs and our habits are challenged by God's word. We should see God saying something different than what seems right to us in our own heart, in our own flesh. To enter the narrow gate, we must agree with what God says we are to believe and with how we are to behave. And then we must maintain those beliefs and those behaviors in order to continue along the narrow road, which is the only way to find life instead of destruction when we die. Jesus could not be more clear. Which takes us to our second point. The choice is simple. And here's why the choice is simple. We are absolutely required to walk along the narrow road, to enter the narrow gate, if we're going to find life instead of destruction. And it is absolutely impossible to do that on our own. It's impossible. So what are we supposed to do? And the answer to the question about what we're supposed to do is where people take something so simple and they make it so complicated. The first way they make it more complicated is by making people believe they have to first be on the narrow road before they can enter the narrow gate. It is very significant that Jesus commands us first to enter through the narrow gate. He doesn't say, get on the narrow road, get yourself into form, fix yourself so that you can fit through the narrow gate. He just says, enter through the narrow gate. Later in Matthew, Jesus meets a young man who is very wealthy. And in Jesus' society, wealth was a sign of God's favor. And this young man tells Jesus that he has kept all of the commandments. And Jesus says to him, well, one thing you still lack. One thing you still lack. Go and sell everything you have, and then come and follow me. Basically, Jesus tells him, get on the narrow road so you can fit through the narrow gate. But he can't do it. He can't get on the narrow road in order to fit through the narrow gate. And so he walks away sad. And Jesus' disciples are just as confused because if this wealthy man who's kept all of Christ, all the God's commandments, if if he can't make it to heaven, well then who can? And Jesus says, again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, Jesus was trying to get that young man to see that he could never get through the narrow gate by himself. But he wanted to do it himself, and he was unwilling to, to fall at Jesus' feet and plead for mercy. And that's why he went away sad. You see, the law, the law says we must get on the narrow road so we can fit through the narrow gate. 
The law says we must stay on the narrow road, no matter how hard it is, so that we can find life and avoid destruction. But the gospel says, the gospel says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, Christ has done this and now you can live. In John chapter 10, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he compares his people to a sheepfold surrounded by a fence and he tells the Pharisees that the only way to enter the sheepfold, there's only one way to enter the sheepfold. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Friends, Jesus is the gate. When Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, he's saying, enter through me. You cannot fit through the eye of the needle yourself, but you can believe Jesus has. Earlier in John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. To enter by the narrow gate is simply to look to Jesus and believe in him. That's it. Paul says this, he says, he came and preached peace meaning peace between you and God. Peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near, basically to all people. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Jesus is the narrow gate. We enter by coming to him in faith. All anyone, anywhere must do to enter through the narrow gate is put their faith in Jesus. But what about right belief and right behavior, Pastor Patrick? Well, right belief begins by simply trusting that Jesus has done it all. And there is no one who knows God more truly and more accurately than the one who himself is God, who came from God. Jesus then lived the perfect life. He kept the law and every thought and every word and every action. And so our right belief and our right behavior is bound up simply in our trust in him. And when we put our faith in him, all that he is and all that he's done becomes ours. All of our failure is laid on him and all of his obedience is given to us. There is nothing, there is no sin, there is no thought and there is no desire in your heart that can keep you from the love of God through Christ. Nothing can keep you from entering through the narrow gate because Jesus is the gate and all who come to him and enter through him will be saved. So one way people make this more complicated than it should be is by saying you have to get on the narrow road before you can get through the narrow gate. The other way people make this more complicated than it actually is is by confusing what it means to be on the narrow road. Some say, 
Well, since we have no power on our own to walk the narrow road, Jesus can't really expect us to, so just do your best, whatever that means to you, which for most of us means very little, and God will forgive you. Or some even go so far as to say that no obedience is required of God's people since Jesus has obeyed in our place, which would be to take the Sermon on the Mount and then turn it completely on its head. Or the other side of the very same coin would be to say, well, now that you've entered by the narrow gate, you must prove yourself a true Christian by walking the narrow road. Yes, Jesus allowed you to enter through him, but you have to prove that you really are a Christian by walking the narrow road. And either way you look at it, this complicates the choice by putting our focus on our behavior. Some say now that we've come through the gate, no obedience is required for those who are on the narrow road because Jesus has done it all. That is not true. But others say obedience is definitely, definitely required to be assured we are on the narrow road. And this is where many of us get stuck. We know our righteousness is supposed to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees because Jesus said that it must. We know that we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect and seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and do to others what we would have them do to us. We know that is true. But how much righteousness? How much perfection? How, how much doing to others what we would have them do to us? How much? Because if you're like me, all I can see every day is my failure. And the constant tug of my heart to do what seems easy and seems right in my own eyes. Now, the really scary people are the ones who think that they are doing enough. But I think for most of us, there's no answer to that question that doesn't ultimately end with me falling short. And so it's hard to know. What do I do? It's easy just to give up and shrug my shoulders and think, well, I'm going to fall short anyway, so I might as well not even try. It's too hard. I'll just, I'll just hope. I'll just hope that Jesus takes care of me in the end. But Jesus isn't just the gate. Jesus is the road. The night before Jesus was crucified, he's meeting with his disciples in the upper room. And he tells them that he's going to go away and he's going to prepare a place for them in heaven. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice again, he says, you don't come to the Father except through him, but he also says, I am the way. That word translated way and John chapter 14, verse 6, is the exact same word that Matthew translates road. Jesus is the road, the truth, and the life. He's the perfect sacrifice that paid the penalty for our sin and makes us holy before God. And he's the road. 
His righteousness was far greater than the scribes and Pharisees. He is perfect as the Father is perfect. He always sought righteousness in the kingdom and he loved us so much that he came and died for all who would believe in him. We enter the gate not by our own efforts but through him by faith and we remain on the road, the hard road, not through our own efforts but because of our faith in him. He is the gate and he is the road. And according to the Apostle Paul, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That word translated completion there, that is the same word that is translated perfect in Matthew 5, 48. So when Jesus says you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, that's the same word. So here Paul is saying, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to perfection until the day of Christ Jesus. Being on the road simply by faith in him means he will give us all the blessings of the kingdom. He will cause us to mourn over our sin. I pray that he's done that even this morning. He will comfort us. I pray that he's done that this morning. He will make us meek and he will give us the earth. He will cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness and he will satisfy that hunger both by making us holy in Christ and by causing us to be more and more holy over time. He will make us merciful as we behold his mercy that he's shown to us. He will make us pure in heart, peacemakers who are willing to endure persecution even. If that's what he calls us to. When we repent of our sins and believe the good news of the kingdom, guess what we get? We get Jesus. We get him and all of the benefits that he offers us in him. We get Jesus And in Jesus, there's forgiveness and transformation and glorification and heaven. But the gift is Christ. Even though we're sinners, God declares us righteous. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, right? It's a judge bringing down the gavel, declaring us not guilty, and we call that justification. And he will make us righteous in this life. He will cause our righteousness to exceed the scribes and Pharisees simply because we will obey from the heart. Slowly over time, we will learn by the power of his spirit to walk in holiness. Not because he threatens us, but because he calls us. John Owen says this. This is kind of thick because it was written in the 1700s, but bear with me, okay? This is worth it. John Owen says, There neither is, nor ever was in the world, nor ever shall be, the least dram of holiness, which means the least bit of holiness, but what, flowing from Jesus Christ, is communicated by the Spirit according to the truth and promise of the gospel. So we hear the promise of the gospel that unites us to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, And then through our union with Christ, our holiness flows from there. That's why I said earlier, people who point us back to our behavior are pointing us to the wrong thing. We always and always must look to Christ and our union with him and what he's done for us and the freeness of the gospel. He is the narrow gate. He is the hard road and he is our life. One final quote. When you feel doubts about being God's child, 
because you have not shown God that obedience that you owe to him. You really do owe it to him. Know that the devil is very near you. He will attempt to falsify the gospel by convincing you that you must be saved by your works. So he is going to make you think that you have not done enough and that because of that, you are condemned before God. Or he will attempt to seduce you to blaspheme the Lord Jesus by causing you to think that you can be or deserve to be your own savior, at least in part. And so he's going to try to convince you that the solution is do better. You have failed. You must do better. Respond to this temptation by saying that you are a poor sinner. That Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. And that there is salvation only in him. Friend, no matter where you are this morning, no matter what sins have gripped your heart, no matter what sins you've given yourself over to, no matter how fearful you are that you have missed the narrow gate and that you're not on the narrow road, the sweetness of the gospel is that you simply turn to him and accept his free offer of grace and you say to the devil, (laughs) I'm a poor sinner. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and there is salvation only in him. That's it. That's it. And then he will keep his promises to you. He will assure you of his love. There's no assurance of his love any other way. Your efforts will never be enough to assure you of his love. Your growth in holiness, yes, that will be a sign that he's really at work in you. But it can never be the ground for your assurance. The ground for your assurance is and always will be the love of Christ. And then as you're connected to him, right, we we do give ourselves to things. We do give ourselves to the hard, difficult work of confessing our sin, putting off bad habits, putting on new habits, finding accountability, reading our Bible, prayer, joining a Bible study. We do all those things but not as a way of fitting through the narrow gate or staying on the narrow road. We do all those things actually to keep our gaze on Christ. We're about to start a new ministry year here at Emmanuel. You're going to have the opportunity to sign up for a Bible study. You're going to have the opportunity to actually come to adult Sunday school on Sunday mornings. You're going to have the opportunity to be a part of this church and maybe a a way where you can, this church and the other people in this church can help you in your weakness Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and all the promises of the gospel. The encouragement to join those studies is not an encouragement to try to fit through the narrow gate or to stay on the narrow road. The encouragement to join those studies is to join in with other weak sinners who desperately need to remember these truths and to keep your gaze fixed on Christ from whom all of the benefits flow. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you again for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that all of our sin has been forgiven in Christ. All of his righteousness has been given to us and that your spirit lives inside us. You have united us to your son by faith. We have become new creations. We have become new people with new desires and new hearts. And yes, Father, sin still dwells within us. And so we know that we can simply come to you, confess that sin, remember the promises of the gospel. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.